Thank you so much for reading, Jane, and reading so well. We're going to begin in a moment, but I do just want to say briefly, not, not make too big a deal of, about it, but my apologies for last week. A, a couple of you mentioned how I began my sermon. I said that atheism was stupid, and what I meant by that was not atheists. There are plenty of atheists are far brighter than I am. Uh, in light of the reality of evil that we've seen in this world, I wanted to say that the philosophical atheism that denies moral reality is, is a system of thought which doesn't make sense of our world. And I'm really sorry if, if for anyone I suggested otherwise. Um, that's the last thing I want to do. I really, really want everyone, atheists especially, if you're here today, to be listening to these wonderful words of the Lord Jesus for the things that we hear are not intellectually discerned, they go through our minds, but they are spiritually discerned. And it's my great longing that all of us know the grace of the Lord Jesus. So my apologies if anyone was offended by that. It was not my intention. We're going to look at this magnificent passage, this epoch-changing moment in all of cosmic history. And I'm going to lead us in prayer as we begin. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We thank you, our Father, that your Son has risen and is ascended, that he has poured out his Spirit to us as his church, and he has given us salvation in his name. We marvel at what a thing this is, and we pray that you would strengthen us in your truth today that as your word, your spirit-inspired word comes into our ears and into our hearts, you would prepare us to live as witnesses for Christ in this world. Amen. Katithanda, or Lake Eyre as it's known, is a moonscape, a dry and lifeless place with a kind of stark beauty, if you've ever seen it. But just last year, in February 2022, there was a one-in-100-year flood that happened actually in South Australia. Normally, the water goes from Queensland and drains into that area, but the rains that fell on South Australia caused an incredible change in that place, going from a moonscape to suddenly life popping up everywhere, green, lush vegetation and desert native flowers all over the place. I saw a short documentary, which is what prompted me to, to share this, and it is extraordinary. The life that came through the flood of the water last year in that place. But what we have here is analogous, it's appropriate, it's how the Bible speaks of the Spirit as water in the desert. And what we have in this passage is this epoch-changing moment when the Spirit of God is poured out on God's people to create us as his people, and to empower us for his mission. You might know that in John chapter 15, Jesus says these very blunt words, apart from me, you can do nothing. And he means it. But the dilemma for us here and now, and for the early churches, he's not here. Just as those two witnesses said, those two angels in chapter 1, he's not here, he's ascended. 
He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he will return to judge the living and the dead. Apart from me, you can do nothing, and we as the church by nature feel weak and timid and on retreat. But Luke has written his two-volume magisterium to give us, as he says in chapter 1, certainty, confidence, assurance, that God's plan outlined in the Scriptures is going exactly as he intended in every single way. Part one, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But part two, and that's where we are, by his mighty pouring out of his spirit, the ascended Christ is at work now in the world to achieve his world-conquering mission. Jesus is the spirit-empowered King. Isaiah chapter 61, he quotes, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. But in Acts, it is the Lord Jesus, ascended and risen, who continues his work through his Spirit. I've got a book in my library that I'm using for preparation. It's called The Acts of the Risen Jesus, about this book. And it makes the point. These are the acts of Jesus through his Spirit. His Spirit at work in and through us as his people. Peter later in his speech in verse 33 explains it like this. He says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that is Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So here we have it, a reality that we live in right now, the Father who has promised it through his prophets the ascended Son who directs it, it being his mission, but through his Spirit in his people. This is a quote from Patrick Schreiner, a commentator. He says, If God is the writer of Acts, Jesus is the director, and the Spirit is the main actor. He is the one on stage enacting the release of captives from Satan for heaven. And so what we have in this passage, as I said, is an epoch-turning moment, a hinge point of all history and God's cosmic plan. And God wants us to have certainty that the plan is profoundly and absolutely on track. Apart from me, you can do nothing, says Jesus. That is true. But we are not apart from him because his spirit has come to give us life and his spirit is powerfully at work in us to do his work. Two points. First, the promised spirit creates the people of God. The promised spirit creates the people of God. Please look with me to verse 1 of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, actually behind that word is the same word as we've had time and again, fulfilled. The day of Pentecost was fulfilled. They were all together in one place and suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, other languages, that is, as the Spirit gave them utterance. That word arrived is, as I said, fulfilled. And what we have here is the one of three great festivals of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. People from all of those lands that you see from verse 11 onwards have come on pilgrimage 
back to Jerusalem, to the capital, to the temple, for the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost, in which these people come from all of those different places, sorry, from verse 9 onwards, Jews and some proselytes, that is Gentiles, who have converted, just a smattering, verse 11. And Pentecost means 50, that is, 50 days after the Passover. 50 days after the Passover, when the people of Israel remember how they were rescued out of slavery by the blood of the Passover lamb and brought together at the foot of a great mountain, Mount Sinai. And that point at which God, in power, through a storm and lightning and fire on the mountain, met with his people and made his people a nation, those 12 tribes of Israel. But what our author is showing us here is that in this moment there is a greater Pentecost, far greater, because this is the moment of the new Pentecost and the new people of God. Fifty days now after the death of the true Passover lamb on a cross, Jesus Christ. Ten days after Jesus has ascended, having spent 40 days showing his resurrected body, interacting with his apostles. And here in verse 1, they're gathered in this upper room, waiting for the promise of the Father, just as Jesus said back in chapter 1, verse 4. And now we have a new Pentecost, a new Israel, originally saved by the blood of a lamb, but now this group saved by the blood of the Passover lamb. Originally met by God, the Lord, in fire and wind and thunder at Mount Sinai, but now the Lord who comes in fire, tongues of fire and wind, but to each of them individually. Originally, Moses was the only one who could go up the mountain to meet with God, but now all of them have ascended to this little upper room. And just as Jesus promised in Luke chapter 3, you will be baptized with the Spirit and fire. Originally, do you remember the tablets of the law written on stone, given to Moses to be given to the people? But now the law written on their hearts, the Spirit invading the hearts of these believers, and the law being given to them at the deepest possible way. Originally, together as a nation, to be a kingdom of priests, to show what God is like to the nations around, but now each and every one of them to be priests and prophets because the Spirit of God has entered their hearts. Back then, 12 tribes, now 12 apostles being the heads of a new nation. This is the true Pentecost, the new nation, the new people of God. It is an epoch-changing moment. Pentecost was about the meeting of God at Sinai. And this is the new Pentecost. It was also about the ingathering of the exiles. People from every land who were Jews, followers of, Jesus, of, of, of God from all of these nations. Verse 9, the Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia. Jews from all around the world gathering in Jerusalem as a foreshadowing of God's promise to gather his people again. As Isaiah said and Zephaniah and the Old Testament prophets because exile was judgment, but gathering is salvation. And this is what is happening now. In this moment, upon all of these different people from these different lands, gathered around Jerusalem, is the end of the exile. These people who hear 
speech that's native to them from the lips of these northerners, these Galileans, in a supernatural way. I won't try a northern English accent. I'm looking at Amanda. No, I won't. She's southern. That's all right. (laughs) Northern's good too. I apologize. (laughs) No, they hear the speech in their own languages, and this indicates how the news of Jesus is going to touch every nation gathering in the exiles of the nation of Israel, beginning in Jerusalem, as Jesus promised at the end of Luke's gospel. And then Judea, the nation around, then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth, all the way to places like Rome and Sydney. And there are two reactions. Verse 12, some are intrigued. What does this mean? They're the people who I suppose at the end of the speech are asking, how can we be saved? There are others who say, well, no, they're just drunk. No, it's just, it's just a, a self-created religious imagination. The promised spirit creates the people of God. It's worth us pausing here for a moment and just recognizing the reality of that amongst us now. In some ways, we are pretty ordinary. We're not gathered in an upper room. We're gathered in a, a wide room. But here and now amongst us is a supernatural work of God that is impossible for man. For a unity gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of people from all different nations as I look out here, even half Chinese Australians like me. I mean, how Gentile can you possibly get? And yet gathered together by the Spirit of God through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ into a new people into a new Israel, into God's people in this world, the body of Christ, with his spirit dwelling in and amongst us. It is an extraordinary thing every Sunday as God's people gather. Not only extraordinary, supernatural, by the work of his living, holy spirit. The promised spirit creates the people of God. We who have been saved by the blood of the true lamb, We who have the apostolic word from the 12 heads of the tribe of Israel. Those who are exiles who've been gathered in. Those who are priests now of the living God. The promised spirit creates the people of God. But also the promised spirit empowers the people of God. Look with me please to verse 14 and 15. But Peter standing with the 11 lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. He clearly hadn't been to the Melbourne Cup. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. The promised spirit creates the people of God, but the promised spirit also, being the spirit of Jesus, does the work of God through his people, through the body the mission of Jesus. And what is being seen here in this scene interpreted by Peter is a demonstration of that power. And it begins with Peter. Think about Peter. Just a few scenes ago, just 50 days ago, cowering, terrified by a slave girl. And yet here Peter stands up amongst the eleven and declares with confidence and boldness that can only be by the work of God in his heart the truth about the Lord Jesus. He will conclude, this Jesus whom you crucified, you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. 
humanly, utterly impossible, saying things that he knew would lead to his death, but extraordinary power. In verse 14, he lifted up his voice, that it's a loud voice, and he uttered, or he addressed them. It's the same word as back in verse 4, as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is not a natural word. The ability to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ and mean it is a supernatural work of the Spirit of God. The promised Spirit empowers the people of God, but did you notice that the promised Spirit empowers all the people of God, not just some, not just the priests and the kings and the prophets? Moses in Numbers said, if only all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would place his Spirit on them. Imagine that, thinks Moses. But it's true. It's happened. Notice who is identified as having the Spirit in verse 17. In the last days, it shall be, be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, the very lowest of society. In those days, I will pour out my Spirit and they shall prophesy. I was told of the story of Gypsy Smith, who was a gypsy, and he lived in a ditch outside Cambridge. But he became a Christian, and it was his testimony that he was the prince of a great king. He had given, he'd been given the Spirit of God. He was a changed man, the, the lowest of that society, raised to the highest dignity. And here we have that reality. In the Old Testament, only prophets, priests, and kings were given the Spirit for a designated time, for a designated task. But now here, all God's people, from the highest to the lowest, male and female, young and old, with the Spirit of Christ in them, prophets of the living God, speaking forth, telling forth the great works of God, what God has done to bring about a new creation through the forgiveness of sins in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The promised Spirit empowers all people for God. The promised Spirit empowers all people for God, but for witness for God. That's the point about prophecy in verses 17 and 18. You see it there. All your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Young men shall see visions. Old men shall dream dreams, and so on. Prophecy, visions, and dreams are the conduits through which heaven comes to earth, and that's precisely what you see happening in Acts. Prophecy, the speaking forth about the things of God, the risen Lord Jesus, that supernatural act happens through all these people, ordinary people, going to speak, gossiping the gospel once they've been persecuted. People like Philip being sent out outside of the land of Israel and begin telling other people about this Jesus. Prophecy, speaking forth the truth about God. The promised Spirit empowers all people of God for witness, finally, in the last days. Did you notice the time frame that is repeated time and again in these verses? In the last days, verse 17, it shall be, God declares. It shall be in the last days. And verse 20 before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. The Bible speaks time and again of the last days that precede the 
day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, which is time and again the moment of God saying, time is up. This world that's in rebellion against me, this world that brings damage to everyone that I've created, time is up. I'm coming back to bring about a new creation, a new world in which there is no more that spoils, a new world in which my enemies are overthrown and my people are saved, a new reality. And that is what the prophet Joel promised, that one day there would be this last day, the day of the Lord, verse 20, a great and magnificent day, a day when the sun would be turned to darkness. And what Peter is saying is that day has come. Now, Joel, looking forward, thought of it most likely as a single day. But what Peter is saying is that actually the last day has entered into the present. The age of the Spirit, which is the age to come, has broken in to this era. And we've entered into that crossover period of the last days. And verse 19, rather verse 20, the sun shall be turned to darkness. It speaks of a cosmic change and event. When was the sun turned into darkness? in the pages of Scripture, at the cross. For three hours, a darkness signaling this is the judgment of this world, poured out not on people, but on God's Son, to usher in the last days in which we live, the last few minutes of overtime before the Lord finally comes back, and that sharp moment of both judgment, but also, verse 21, salvation. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And here's, here's the point Peter's saying, and here's the cash value. We live now in those days. It's the last few minutes of overtime, and the Lord, now revealed as Jesus, who's risen and ascended, will return just as he went. And that day will be a day of judgment against all who have turned against him. And yet a day of extraordinary salvation to anyone who has turned and received the forgiveness of sins, which he bought for them by his shed blood. And that's the reality that we've been speaking about in Acts now. I've been using the acronym PORFOS. It's the age of the PORFOS, the proclamation of repentance. Turn back to God and his king for the forgiveness of sins, for the guaranteed forgiveness of sins. And this is what is happening now. The spirit of the ascended Jesus on the people of God, on us, in and amongst us, to be his people, first of all, brought from death to life, but now to be his witnesses in the world, empowered by his spirit as a church to speak of him, to say, turn back and be forgiven. And for us individually, as and when we have opportunity, by the power of the spirit, to be bold and to speak of Christ and his salvation. And what an extraordinary thing it is. The youngest little granddaughter taught of the Lord Jesus in the Sunday school, upon whom the Spirit has come, speaking to her granny who doesn't believe in Jesus. Granny, why don't you believe in him? He's the king. I want to see you in heaven. If you turn back to him, he will forgive you. Impossible, apart from the Spirit of God. A supernatural work doesn't look very much 
outwardly, but is the very power of God and the very plan of God in this world today. So back to Lake Eyre, a dry and dusty land. That is what we are by nature, each and every one of us, dead bones. But those of us who know the Lord Jesus have heard his gospel word, have been given life by his Holy Spirit and brought together as his people. It is an extraordinary thing that has happened. And now, as his people, he gives us the privilege and the power to be his witnesses in this world, to declare the most wonderful news ever. That yes, there is a coming judgment. This evil world will not persist. But there is hope for each and every one who turns because you will receive the forgiveness of sins. There is a Savior who loves you, who is also the King. And in his death, his precious blood, there is forgiveness for the worst of sinners, even me and even you. We pray together. And in the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. We marvel, living Lord Jesus, at what you have done in pouring out your spirit, in giving us life, in making us your people, and enabling us to be your witnesses in this world. We pray that you'd enable us to see life clearly, and that you would enable us to live boldly for your son's sake, for your sake. Amen.